the passage which we have just read is one of the most puzzling in the Gospel of Matthew. Satan boldly confronts the Son of God about provision in verses 1 to 4 when he tempts Jesus to take the easy way out of hardship. He then asks Jesus to try presumption in verses 5 to 7 when he dares Jesus to live carelessly and to presume upon God's graciousness. His final idea is the ultimate perversion of priorities, and we see that in verses 8 to 11, when Satan madly suggests that Jesus could have complete dominion in a moment if only the Creator would bow to his creature. These strange, otherworldly confrontations between God the Son and Satan, a corrupt angel, raise questions which we will not even begin to answer this morning. Indeed, that's one of the privileges of being a guest preacher, is that you can choose difficult passages and know that all the hard questions will be left for your ministers, Andy and Harrison, at a later time. Nonetheless, there is so much to learn from this account, even if we're not tackling all the most complicated questions. And in fact, in reading about the testing of God's son, Jesus There's almost no limit to the number of lessons we are to learn. I don't want to say there's a moral to the story. There's a thousand morals to this history. Bishop J.C. Ryle, if I can mention a bishop in a Presbyterian church, uh, mentions a few of them. Uh, First, he says, what a real and mighty enemy we have in the devil. He is not afraid to assault even the Lord himself. People today speak of demons and devils lightly. He's presented as a cartoonish character. In truth, he's a serious enemy. And that is because in the second place, if Satan is this bold with Christ, he will surely be even more bold with Christians. Are you ever tempted to entertain unloving thoughts about others? Do you have trouble putting away dark desires that discourage you when they come up? Do you have shameful memories that keep replaying in your mind? Well, there's a reason for that. We have an enemy. He's often either tempting us to sin or trying to convince us that we can't avoid it anyways. He's spreading lies. And we must know in advance how to deal with his temptations, especially those that we face regularly. Ryle says there's no enemy worse than an enemy who's never seen and never dies. Let us remember every day that if we would be saved, we must not only crucify the flesh and overcome the world, but also resist the devil. Third, and this is so obvious that none of you missed it, but it's so important that I need to say it anyway, uh, but the whole purpose of Satan's temptations is to make us sin against God. This business of temptation is very personal for Satan. He hates God. He wants all things to work for the harm uh, of those who love God. And he wants everything to work for God's displeasure. And so he's always trying to get us to sin against God. He tempts us to deny sin, to ignore sin, to excuse sin, to try and manage our sin. But above all else, he wants us to commit sin. This is what makes sin so serious. This is why Satan and his angels rejoice as we argue in our kitchens, as we're selfish in driving our cars, as we are careless in minding what we see on our computers or on our phones, or when we are thoughtless in our friendships. It's because he wants us to sin, that we must band together as Christian people, as Christ's church, praying for one another, 
earnestly that we would not be led into temptation. Fourth, we should remember in our temptations that the one in whom we trust and in whose name we pray know what it is to be tempted. Surely it's one of the most important lessons to draw from this passage. And the writer of the Hebrews reminds us that of this very thing, that Jesus was tempted in all things like we are. He can identify with us and does. He understands us. We may pour out our hearts to him. We may confess our every struggle. He has fought against sin and against our enemy. And he knows what we need. Now, I wish every one of you... Uh, already owned a copy of J.C. Ryle's expository thoughts on the Gospels. And then I could save time this morning by saying, uh, volume one, page 27, and you would nod and go home and read it. Uh, but I don't have that confidence. And so, uh, as it happens, I'm compelled to quote him again as he considers how the testing of Jesus is intended to help Christians who are tested too. Are they ever tempted, he asks, by Satan to distrust God's care and goodness? So was Jesus. Are they, let us say you, are you ever tempted to presume on God's mercy and run into danger without warrant? So also was Jesus. Are you ever tempted to commit one great private sin for the sake of some great seeming advantage? So also was Jesus. Are you ever tempted to listen to some misapplication of scripture as an excuse for doing wrong? So also was Jesus. He is just the Savior that tempted people require. Fifth, we should be reminded from this passage that there's a difference between being tempted and and falling into temptation, for falling for that temptation. Jesus was tempted, but he did not sin. Indeed, he could not. That he did not sin is seen everywhere and stated in Hebrews. That he couldn't, we we know, because he was not only a man, but also the God-man. And God cannot sin. His struggle against temptation not only did succeed, but but had to succeed. Uh, Much more could be said on this topic. But here, let me say again that there's a comfort for each of us in this distinction between being tempted and falling into temptation. Let me try to illustrate what I mean. Uh, There was a season when uh, I traveled through Washington, D.C.'s Union Station uh, once a week. Uh, and I learned by hard experience that there was, that there was one, one of the hallways was filled with large problematic images uh, that Satan could use to tempt me. Uh, and, and so I choose another route through that station to my train to, to avoid that temptation. Again, when I walked up a set of stairs each week in New York's uh, Penn Station, I learned after my first unfortunate time up the steps uh, that there was a, a magazine rack near the, near the top of the stairs and, and I, and I need, learned to need to, to look left instead of looking right every week as I would go up the stairs. Now, now each time I took one route instead of another, and each time I, I looked left instead of right, the Holy Spirit was helping me to overcome an identifiable temptation. Praise God that when Satan tempts us, we do not always give in to temptation. I, I, I do too often, but not always. Now, here's my point. Satan is very clever. He not only tempts us, but he tries to make us feel guilty simply because we have faced a temptation. Why are these sights even a problem for me? 
Wouldn't a better, stronger Christian not even be bothered by such things? Whether, whether you look or don't you look, isn't it already a sign of your failure, your weakness as a Christian, that, that you even need to consider these kinds of things? You, you, you see, Satan talks to us like that. Whether we, or whether or not we have fallen uh, into a temptation. Am, am I making any sense to you? That the very, the very fact that we sense, that we feel the power of the temptation, the very fact that we know it's there is enough for our old enemy, the devil, to, uh, to try and, and convince us that we have failed. He tries to convict us of sins we didn't commit as, as if we had just by the very presence of temptation. But the life of our Lord reminds us that there's a difference between being exposed to a temptation, knowing it's there, seeing its power, and actually failing the test. Like our Lord, and with his assistance alone, we sometimes can and do do what he always did. Let us not live in Satan's shadow, under the hail of his accusations, when we can bask in the sunshine of a father's face who helps us and loves us. A few moments ago, I mentioned it's not enough to say there's a, a moral to the story. And I, I, I tried to, to show that by just pointing out a few of the lessons that we can learn from this passage. But it's also enough. It's also not enough to say that there's a, a moral to the story because there's an important backdrop to this account that we must stand back and appreciate. Because as God designed it, this mysterious moment in history remains one of the most important connections between the New Testament and the Old. Let me try to explain. If you know the first gospel well, you'll remember that the infant Jesus was rushed to Egypt for a time to escape the clutches of King Herod. Matthew also explained back in chapter 2 that this was a fulfillment of a prophecy in Hosea. Just as God's chosen son, Israel, came up out of Egypt, so too God's son, Jesus, came up out of Egypt. Now, Jesus coming up out of Egypt in chapter 2 sets the stage for Jesus in the wilderness in chapter 4. Not only is Jesus like Israel and going down to and coming up from, from Egypt, he's also like Israel and that he was tested in the wilderness. You, you see, Jesus was reliving the life of Israel in a kind of compacted or compressed form. I think you'll, you'll know what I mean, but again, I'll attempt an example. Uh, we uh, recently had visitors in our home, and, and they're collecting socks to send to the Ukraine. And they had too many socks to fit in their car. And so my wife lent them one of those big plastic bags with the, with the hole in it. You attach your... Hoover or vacuum cleaner to it, uh, and it sort of sucks the air out and everything gets, gets highly compressed. Uh, well, that was not a great analogy. Let me be the first to admit it this morning. But, but in a somewhat similar fashion, key moments in the history of Israel were being sort of shrunk down or compressed into and then being relived in, in the life of our Lord. And if you read the Old Testament regularly and you know what is written, you'll spot some some parallel lines running through these accounts. The Israelites were in the wilderness. Jesus was in the wilderness. They spent 40 years there. 
Jesus spent 40 days. They weren't tempted by hunger. Jesus, no doubt, was tempted by an even more intense hunger. You can see now these wilderness scenes belonged together. Uh, Piecing these Old and New Testament events together is is a bit like finding an old painting in your attic uh, that's supposed to be a pair with the one that's that's hanging in your dining room. Uh, They go together, you discover. And and yet when the two scenes are brought together, you begin to see not only the, the similarities, but also the differences. The Israelites wanted God to give them food in the rocky desert. They almost demanded a miracle. Jesus was asked to turn stones to bread, and he refused. Jesus would face hunger like the Israelites, but not complain, not demand a miracle, not even work one in his own power. Israel was tested, and they failed. Sometimes they complained. Sometimes they they did as they pleased and assumed that God would make everything come out well anyway. Sometimes they demanded more. Now, because they cared more about the immediate concerns of this world than they did about the promises of what was to come. But Jesus was tested, and he resisted. He he was tempted as Israel was, yet without sin, without complaint, without compromise. But if you know your Bible well, you'll know that epic temptations come in sets of three, not pairs of two. There is still one other picture in the very back of the attic, if you will. Only when we set that third picture with the other two have we properly assembled the work of the master. What makes this third frame fit with the other two is not similarity of scene. It's continuity in characters. You may have already noticed that in the wilderness temptation of Jesus, the second Adam, that Satan's in the foreground. But in the wilderness temptation of Israel... We know he's there, but we don't get to see him directly. But there is this other temptation to consider the first in human history. The scene is different, but Satan is there once more. He's front and center, as is the first Adam and and his wife. In a garden, the first Adam and his wife were confronted with a temptation regarding provision. Encouraged to think that God was not taking as good a care of them as he could. Seeing that he was withholding from them something that was just so appetizing. In that temptation, they were encouraged by Satan to presumption. Assuming they could do the opposite of what God commanded. And that still things would come out okay. Ultimately, they gave themselves to perversion. I don't think that's too strong of a word. And maybe it's not strong enough. They listened to the truth that God had spoken, being twisted into a lie. And they chose to follow the creature rather than the creator. They put Satan's word before God's, and they made themselves the real authority in their lives as they chose to go their own way. And when Adam, whom one of the gospel writers also calls God's son, chose to twist the will of his father in heaven. He sinned, and the world was plunged into sin with him. I mentioned it's not enough to point out the lessons we must learn from Matthew 4, because there are connections we need to see in Matthew 4. But the the most important reason why we need to move beyond the moral of the story is that there's a gospel to this story. In reading about the testing of God's son, Jesus, 
and then reflecting back on the testing of God's son Israel and God's son Adam, there is a message that we must not miss. Let us take these temptations in their historic order. Adam was a representative man. And when our first parents failed the test, a kind of virus was unleashed that no one could escape. We were all corrupted then. Subsequent to that, and left to ourselves, we all crash and die. After that, we only see this failure repeated in different ways. Israel replicates Adam's failures. And eventually, as Adam was exiled from the garden, so too they are exiled one wave after another from the land of Israel, from the land of Canaan. It seems like testing, failure, exile is the only pattern we'll ever see until we turn to the opening pages of the New Testament and we see another wilderness, another appearance of Satan, another test ordered by God. And here where every mere mortal has failed, we see one man who succeeds. And of course, this is just the beginning. My my Bible here, and perhaps many of your Bibles, have the heading, The Temptation of Jesus. As if this were the only time that Satan assailed our Lord. But unlike the temptation of Adam, and very much like the temptation of Israel in the wilderness, for most of the rest of Christ's life, Satan recedes into the background. But we see his handiwork everywhere. The whole of Christ's life is one characterized by conflict and adversity and false accusation and rejection, each a signature of Satan himself. And what are Christians to learn from this? Well, at the very least, Christians are to see in in Christ's resistance of Satan an example for ourselves. As one author has put it, Christians must not go for a temporal kingdom, which Jesus refused. They must not grab fulfillment now, which Jesus declined. And they must not compromise with Satan, which Jesus rejected. They are to use the Spirit's sword in the ongoing battle against the forces of evil. Well, this is true. But you see, even more than than, than observing Jesus as an example, we must understand him and believe in him as our substitute. All that he did was in our place. And for our sakes, he came to face temptation as the last Adam. He came as the, as a new representative who lived and obeyed and resisted temptation where we have not and sometimes seem to, to, to not be able to do so as a substitute. He was earning for us a righteousness which we can never acquire for ourselves. He fought compromise so that his steadfastness could be credited to us when we lack courage. He resisted easy prestige and privilege so that his kingdom perspective could be imputed to us when we're worldly and short-sighted. He turned to God for his provision so that his confidence could be ascribed to us when we worry. He carefully avoided presuming on his father's kindness so that his wisdom, his holiness, could be counted ours when we are foolish and careless. He despised the perverted twisting of priorities 
that puts satanic suggestion at the same level as divine revelation. He resisted Satan, in other words, so that all who trust in Christ will be completely and permanently forgiven for each and every time we have given in to the flesh, the world, and yes, the devil. He was supplying the righteousness that comes to justified sinners united to Christ by faith. There is good news in Matthew chapter 4 and in Jesus defeating this temptation. As I look back with you over these 11 verses, it seems that supernatural events are the most notable features of the chapter. I mean, where else in the Bible do we encounter Satan at one end of the passage and angels at the other? Where else do we, do we, does the most sinful of all creatures guide the sinless creator God from place to place? Where else do we read of a mountain where Jesus can see the whole world or a conversation on a protrusion of the temple while priests and people mill about underneath unawares of the drama overhead? And yet the most remarkable feature of this chapter may be the very thing that appears most normal. Jesus quoting scripture. What could be more normal than that? But when you think about it, isn't it astounding that after every assault, Jesus directs the attention of the devil to the book of Deuteronomy? This is amazing because as Matthew Henry's commentator commentary notes, Jesus himself is the eternal word and could have produced the mind of God without recourse, without referral uh, to the writings of Moses. And yet Christ wanted to set an example that he wants each one of us to follow. Who better than Jesus, not not only to, to know scripture, but to understand its power, its authority. Who better than the incarnate word to commend the written word of God. We sometimes don't take the Bible seriously enough. But it was enough for Jesus to say, it is written. There was no other argument needed for him. Is there something more profound, more learned or clever that we need for ourselves? Christianity's cultured despisers think that it's absurd for us to be guided by this old book. But it was an old book already when Jesus was walking on the face of this earth. And yet he quoted the Bible as if the scriptures properly applied or a sufficient guide to every twist and turn of life, even in the most difficult situation. I, I add properly applied because Satan can quote scripture too. But he twists what is written. He takes the book that is coming from God and tries to use it against God. So scripture must be understood well and used well. We have many reasons, don't we? to hold the scriptures tightly. Classic confessions of the Christian church, including the the one that, that your church and my church uses, reminds us that the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for, for his own glory, man's salvation, for, for faith and life, is either expressly set down in scripture or by thoughtful, logical reasoning may be deduced from scripture and from nowhere else. The way of salvation is so clearly taught in in one place or another in the Bible that not only the learned but the unlearned can understand it. It's a book that speaks without error, with authority, and with clarity. And we can trust it infallibly. 
But of course, and much more importantly, the Bible speaks eloquently of itself. The psalmist says once and again that God's word is a light. The book of Proverbs teaches us that the word of God is intended to give us certainty. The epistle to the Romans tells us that the scriptures are intended for our comfort. 2 Timothy 3 tells us that it's good for everything. Throughout the scripture, we are given any number of reasons why we should hold it dearly and trust it fully. But I want you to see this morning that in Matthew chapter 4, we are especially directed to the Bible as an aid and a comfort in the fight against temptations to sin. One of the old Puritans once wrote that only scripture is strong enough to support and bear us up in the sad hours of temptation. How true. One of the Protestant reformers once said, Christ uses scripture as his shield. Those who voluntarily throw away that armor deserve to be strangled by Satan, into whose hands they give themselves up unarmed. That was Calvin. I I mentioned that we need to know how to deal with the devil. The way we deal with him is to know the scripture, to use the scripture in our defense, to know how to apply it. It's because the Bible is so effective that Satan wants us to read it very little each day and to trust it even less. He wants us to be uncomfortable with the Bible. He wants to airbrush the influence of the Bible out of our lives. He reminds us that the word of God is offensive and irrelevant to our unbelieving friends. He wants us to set it aside because he knows that the word of God and good Bible teaching is the life-giving power of God and the most effective weapon against Satan in this Christian's life. And the most important thing that the Bible has to set about temptation is right here in Matthew 4, that Christ has already dealt the death blow, that he is the victor over temptation. Our enemy wants us to feel hopeless about our sin. Some of us do. But the scriptures announce that Jesus has taken away sin's penalty and he has broken the back of its power. There was a time in World War II when the Allies realized that they were going to win. Uh, Historians argue about when that was. Was it the Battle of Leningrad? Was it this or that? But there came a point when the German supply lines were, were, were cut, when they were extended beyond the reach of the support they needed, when they were divided on so many fronts that they were going to lose. This is a little bit like what we're hearing about this morning. World War II went on for a couple more years. The fight wasn't over, but the win was pretty much guaranteed. We're not pretty much guaranteed. We are guaranteed. Christ is the victor. You will have to fight. It's not yet time to spa and pamper yourself. But the fight will go on. And the victory is assured. And when we see this, there is, there is comfort and there is power. We continue the fight because the victory is assured. 
I said that in order to understand Matthew 4, we need to have not one, but three pictures in view. But even, even as I think aloud with you about Christ's victory this morning, there are other sights that come to mind. We've spent a half hour looking at only one wall of a gallery in a sense. But step back and look around. And you'll see other scenes that the Holy Spirit has, has exhibited in this special exhibit of saving revelation. Look, look with me at the end of Christ's ministry. There we see another temptation. The scripture presents before our eyes a scene from the Garden of Gethsemane with our Savior dreading the cup of wrath which he had to drink down to its dregs. We see him again hanging on his cross, a spiritual wilderness of sorts where he was more alone than ever before with the crowds around him, testing him. But thankfully even that does not offer the the, the full panorama because after a a dark portrait of a tomb, we see a scene of dazzling glory, of of angels who, who blinded the guards of a grave that was suddenly empty. And there is more. There's a long scene that begins at Pentecost and stretches the full length of the gallery. And in that scene, you will see apostles and teachers. You will see the praying men and women and children of the Middle Ages. You'll see the great reformers. And and if you look closely, you'll even see insignificant people like you and me. All of us called to resist temptation. All of us called to be like Christ in his suffering and to trust in his grace in our sin. All of us called to be part of a society that shows the kingdoms of this world God's glory. In short, all of us called to live by what is written. And at the end is a final scene. There we see Satan bound and banished, never to tempt again. There we see the the Son of God with angels around him and the world falling down before him. And there we will see the church of Christ brought into its glory. There we glimpse the elect from every nation joining with those whose rest is one, finally doing to perfection what we've always only ever partly done. There we will worship the Lord our God And him only will we serve. It's a glorious sight. It's almost almost too good to be true. So how do we know that it is? Well, because it is written. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, help each one of us and equip us to fight temptation by trusting in our Savior, who has overcome all on our behalf. Teach us to know the scriptures, to use wisely what is written for our defense and for the glory of your name and kingdom. Every word we find in its pages. We ask this, and then we are emboldened to ask more. In spite of our weakness and the weakness of others whom we love, We pray that your word would continue to increase here in this city, among these people, and in this land and world, so that the number of your disciples would be multiplied greatly everywhere, and that many who have struggles like our own would become obedient to the faith. 
We pray that you would fill us with your grace and power so that no one would be able to withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which we speak from the scriptures. And in all of this, may your name be lifted high above us as we ourselves recede into the crowd of your worshipers. In Jesus' name we ask all this. Amen.